Hey, guys, where the heck have you been? Well, I went to India. And I played some guitar and read Charles King's lascivious history of how Boaz and some of his anthropology students influenced ideas about race and gender in the 20th century. Where the heck were you, Eric? Well, I wasn't in India, but I was in the UK. Uta! 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 Where I enjoyed the distinct pleasure of unclogging toilets and navigating the national healthcare system for a couple of months. Uh, what? Uh, by which I mean, <laughs> I was actually leading a study abroad program. Ooh, I did that once. It was it was awesome. Just just great. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I can hear your lack of enthusiasm in your voice now. I <laughs> yeah. feel it firsthand. Yes. <laughs> okay, so when we left off like three months ago, what were we doing? Well, we were in the middle of a really great miniseries on race and health. Don't you remember? Um, we did two episodes, the first one on studies of race and health in antebellum America. Uh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, where the doctors were trying to figure out why slaves were trying to run away and medical terms and all kinds of other crazy stuff. And then we did a second episode on sickle cell disease and race. Yeah, those were good. We should do more of those. Well, that's what we're going to do right now. Cue intro. Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. Okay. So we've definitely been on hiatus for a little bit here. I think I need to stretch or warm up or something. And also you two are the health experts. So I'm going to force you two into doing most (laughs) of the talking today. So what are we going to talk about in our third episode on race and health? Today, we're going to tackle another major topic in race and health, hypertension, that is high blood pressure. Yeah, I mean, from a public health perspective, one of the biggest racial health disparities in the U.S. today is in cardiovascular health, like what we see in heart attacks and blood pressure levels between white and black groups. I pulled a quote about this from the American Heart Association, and they say that hypertension in African-Americans is, quote, among the highest in the world, more than 40% of non-Hispanic African-American men and women have high blood pressure. For African-Americans, high blood pressure also develops earlier in life and is usually more severe, end quote. And in the 2007 to 2010 NHANES, which is our national health survey in the U.S., it recorded about 45% of African-American adults having hypertension as opposed to only 32% of white adults. That's a pretty big difference. Hey, Joe. Yeah? I thought it was my job to read quotes. I thought you were stretching. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Good point. Okay. So from your quote, I hear you saying that it's definitely an important health question, but Yes. I mean, I thought that basically everybody knew this. Isn't it common knowledge that hypertension is a thing that people of African descent struggle with more in the United States than people of European descent? Well, maybe people say they know it, but just like everything else we talk about on this podcast, it turns out that high blood pressure has a long and really interesting history of being scrutinized in studies of race. First, by people interested in proving a genetic basis for the biology of race, then by individuals focused on the effect of salt. Huh. And I'll chip in to say it's still studied by scholars, some of us included, who are interested in exploring the complex ways that stress and social inequality get embodied in poor health. The case of blood pressure and race is a great example of what the legal scholar and sociologist Dorothy Roberts means by the phrase, race is not biological, but it does kill people. Huh. Race is not biological, but it does kill people. That's catchy. 
I think I've also heard both of you use that phrase before, but exactly what do we mean when we say it? Well, you know, in the couple years or so that we've been working on this podcast, we've tried to show over and over again that the idea that race is a real biologically based characteristic of humans is not true, right? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that race doesn't exist as a cultural fact of life that's imposed by people groups upon other people groups. Hmm. And in many cases, those cultural beliefs and practices have really very real biological effects. In this case, we're looking at something where people started out believing that there was a simple genetic mechanism underlying differences in blood pressure between black and white groups in the USA, which is where most of the early work was done. Hmm. Even when researchers focused in on salt intake and potential genetic differences in how we handle salt in our bodies, simple answers have not been forthcoming in the literature. As we began to realize that biology wasn't causing all of the blood pressure disparities between racial groups, we turned again to the notion that cultural issues, including out-and-out -out racism, maybe were creating situations that caused high blood pressure in some individuals rather than innate genetic biological differences. Wait, wait a second. Didn't you guys just give the punchline of the whole episode? But that's the story that we're going to trace out today. Okay. And using blood pressure is a great way to do it because people have been looking at this stuff and messing it up for way over a century. Okay, well, where are we going to begin the story? Well, 4,000 years ago. <laughs> it's going to be a long episode. We already planned it out. Wait a second. Did they have the ability to detect high blood pressure 4,000 years ago? Not, not in terms that we would understand, but they called it hard pelts back then. Wow. Practitioners of Ayurvedic medicine in India actually were checking on their patients' cardiovascular health by gently sort of palpating them centuries ago. Okay, so uh, four millennia in a single episode. Let's go. <laughs> not, not, not quite. We're going we're gonna to leap ahead. It wasn't okay. until the blood pressure cuff that we use today was invented in 1896 and until physicians standardized the practice of what they were trying to listen to through a stethoscope in 1905, that anyone took scientifically useful measurements of blood pressure or high blood pressure. In 1904, the first paper came out suggesting that high blood pressure was related to salt consumption. Huh. By 1929, blood pressure differences between groups were seen, and significantly for our story, there was a physician named Cyril Donison who had been working in Kenya during the late 1920s, and there he noticed that there were no cases of high blood pressure among the 1,800 Africans that had been admitted in the hospital. Hmm. He later published a book that suggested that hypertension, among a handful of other diseases, was the consequence of not adapting behaviorally to the stress of modern life. This was a very early biocultural hypothesis. That's interesting, but what do you mean when you say biocultural? I think he means Donison was recognizing high blood pressure had maybe biological, but also cultural or social causes. And that's the nature of blood pressure. It's sensitive to stress. I mean, hmm. blood pressure is sensitive to lots of other things too, like in fact, how much salt you eat. But the fact that it responds to stress means that any kind of stressful experience can become embodied through one's blood pressure. Yeah. Okay. I see that. So um, it sounds like people had figured out how to measure blood pressure by the early 20th century, but you haven't mentioned race yet. When did blood pressure start getting linked to race? 
Well, as near as I can tell from the early 1930s on, there was a survey done in 1932 looking at black and white workmen, and they found higher blood pressures across all ages for the black workers. And anthropologists got involved in the study of blood pressure pretty quickly after that, right, Jim? Well, sort of. uh, By the late 1950s, the anthropologist Norman Scotch had brought back Donison's idea that high blood pressure came from not meeting environmental demands with adaptive behavior. Hmm. By the 1960s, there was substantial evidence from a number of surveys to indicate that African-Americans had hypertension at nearly twice the level that U.S. whites did. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like by the 1960s, both anthropologists and physicians had noticed that Americans from African descent tended to have higher blood pressure than American whites. And let me guess, did they then speculate that this demonstrated some kind of biological underpinning for white superiority? So cynical. Is that what being (laughs) in Britain does to you? It just makes you cynical? (laughs) But, but but in this case, really, what's interesting is that researchers saw that it wasn't that simple. Aha! Plot twist! Ah, exactly. <laughs> By the 1960s, there were more studies accumulating, finding relatively low blood pressures, and especially no age-related increase in blood pressure among several populations in Africa. Okay, so now it sounds like it couldn't have just been a straight biology of race, right? Because if it was something inherent to black people in America, then it also would have shown up in ancestral populations in West Africa. Is that right? Right. Okay. And we saw last episode that Frank Livingstone had tried to undercut the race and sickle cell linkage in the 50s and 60s by researching Africans in malarial environments. So is this what's happening in the case of hypertension as well? Something like that. In some ways, the story about race and hypertension gets even more interesting than what Livingston did. We have James P. Henry, a physiologist interested in how fluids move in organisms, who teamed up with an epidemiologist, John Castle, to publish a seminal paper laying out a model for the physiology of high blood pressure caused by what they term in the paper psychosocial factors. By doing this, they were focusing on what was perceived by Western medicine as the normal increase in blood pressure throughout adult aging, but they showed that this pattern is abnormal, and it's associated with what they considered cultural disruption, changed behavioral expectations in groups that experience modernization or or culture change. I have a great quote from them. Um, Eric, are you done stretching yet? Because, I mean, <laughs> if so, you know, contractual obligations. All right, all right, hold on, let me find it. Okay, here's the quote. <clears throat> I, I should, like, adopt a British accent. No, no. Too complicated. Yes. yes, I think these are Americans, aren't they? They are, they are, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, so, quote, the elevated blood pressure does not depend on the presence or absence of a high state of technology and social sophistication. Rather, it appears to turn on the issue of whether the society or group has an established tradition with a social structure, which remains unchallenged during the lifetime of the oldest subjects. Okay, explain that. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Yes, I know this paper. So what they were saying and why it was so groundbreaking at the time was that people's blood pressure increases as they age because the pace of cultural and technological change creates extra stresses for those who are older, Mm. not because we just get like clogged arteries or weaker hearts or whatever as we age. 
this is like where my daughter is like super into Snapchat and I don't even know what the heck Snapchat is. So I just get really stressed. Exactly. Okay. Only on a bigger scale. Like think about my parents' generation, your generation, Jim. Hey, hey, I'd be in your grandparents' generation. <laughs> if only I were that young. But, um, but you know, this generation was born when TV was just being invented. There was no internet, certainly uh, no wireless internet, no home computers, no smartphones, no podcasts even. And look at us all now. On yeah. Facebook all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and unlike Jim, most people struggle to keep up with that much change in one lifetime, especially if they're lacking resources like education to help them adapt to it. Uh, like I'm struggling with my kids right now. So that was Henry and Castle's hypothesis that people's blood pressure increases as they age because the stress of adapting to large scale cultural changes accumulates over time. That just intuitively seems correct to me. So it seems that by the mid-20th century, we have some research that pretty clearly states that blood pressure is related to biology, but also to social life. And then there's also the suggestion that it's not really related to race, even though it's higher among African populations than in white Americans. Mm -hmm. So, right. guys, I got to be honest, this, this doesn't sound like the super contentious race-fueled debates that we usually talk about. That's just because we haven't talked about salt yet. Mm, salt. I like salt. <laughs> so does everyone else. And as you probably know, salt consumption is related to blood pressure. Wait, wait, wait a minute. We didn't finish up with the race hypertension stress stuff. Ah, let's skip that and move on to salt now and get back to that later. I mean, <laughs> okay. if we're going right. to go chronologically here, the salt stuff is really what came up next after Henry and Castle. This, this stuff started in the 1970s. All right. Salt it is. Stress later. Stress and salt. I mean, salt and stress. The salt stuff really accounts for some of the more egregious racialist hyperbole in the latter part of the 20th century. Eric, this is where we're going to get into the real contention around race and blood pressure. Okay, I'm ready. Hit me. So remember, we already were beginning to understand by 1904 that salt was related to blood pressure. We've yeah. since figured out, though, that salt influences blood pressure through a variety of pathways, primarily involving the kidneys. And one thing that became clear as more and more research on salt and blood pressure built up is that there's a tremendous range of variability between individuals in terms of how much impact a given level of salt intake has on their blood pressure. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay. Then in 1973, the anthropologist Lillian Gleberman conducted a meta-analysis of blood pressure and salt intake looking at 27 worldwide populations. She confirmed that salt intake was affecting rates of hypertension and that some African-Americans, most notably those from Georgia and St. Kitts, mm -hmm. appeared to be especially sensitive to salt intake, showing very high blood pressures for the level of salt in their diets. Okay, this is interesting. And I can see how it could be related to just the stress of being black in the Deep South or being from a former slave island or something like that? Well, that isn't what she thought. She went on to suggest that the African progenitors of the North American slaves had limited access to salt. So their body huh. had to biologically conserve it. And so that set them up to be sensitive to salt as it became more available. Oh. But... And I'll chip in here again. Okay. This, this is the study where she failed to note that even though they had about the same salt consumption levels, the Africans from Liberia and Nigeria had lower blood pressure than either the black or white Americans. So in other words, she 
basically ignored evidence that was refuting her hypothesis, even though it was right there in front of her. Oh, okay. Then, then later that same decade, there's a physician, Clarence Grimm, who began studying blood pressure-related salt sensitivity in African-Americans. The racialist aspect came into play when historian <laughs> Thomas Wilson published his hypothesis about salt sensitivity in African-Americans being related to certain factors unique to North American slavery. Ah, uh, uh, yes. This is where it starts to get really interesting. Okay. In 1986, Wilson was trying to account for high blood pressure in U.S. and Caribbean blacks, but not in the Africans in Africa. He picked up on the idea of Gleiberman that salt limitation in African populations could be the reason that slaves were pre-selected for salt retention. Maybe this is just a coincidence, but I, if I'm right, this was also the time that we talked about way, way back when we did our episode on race and athletics, where Jimmy the Greek Snyder made that comment where like slavery made African-Americans superior athletes. And then he was fired as a TV analyst from CBS. Wasn't that right around that same time? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Same year. But going back to salt and the theme of this episode, okay, yeah, Grimm, sorry. <laughs> Grimm and Wilson worked together on what then became the slavery hypertension hypothesis. They published uh -huh. their big synthesis of this idea in the medical journal Hypertension in 1991. I love teaching about this. I want to explain it. Absolutely. All right. So the slavery hypertension hypothesis, it suggested that because the conditions for slaves during the Middle Passage were so harsh and dehydrating, you know, with people getting all kinds of nasty gastrointestinal diseases, uh -huh. not to mention like seasickness and the heat and limited supply of clean drinking water on slave ships, all those factors would have favored survival for individuals who were really good at retaining sodium in their blood because they'd be less likely to die of dehydration than others who weren't quite so good at holding on to sodium. Okay, so this would just be like one of those cases of natural selection, only extremely intense, like a selection bottleneck where only really, truly the most fit would survive that, the, the right. Atlantic Passage. Okay. Yes, so that was the idea. And so then... West African slaves land in the eventual United States. Slavery happens. That's yet another moment when being a salt retainer would be advantageous because of the incredibly hard labor that slaves were doing in hot climates, right? So, so the whole selection environment would just be changed to favor those who could retain salt the best. This all seems to make sense. In theory. Right. Okay. Okay. So then emancipation happens. And as time goes on, people start eating lots of salt in their diets. McDonald's shows up and there's uh -huh. ever more salt in our diets with the rise of the industrial food system, which uses huge amounts of salt to make everything tasty for us. Okay. And suddenly this fantastic ability to hold on to sodium is not good anymore. Uh -huh. Instead, in modern high sodium diets, being someone who holds on to sodium is a real problem because it can lead to high blood pressure. Huh. And that, according to the slavery hypertension hypothesis, is why we see such high levels of hypertension in present-day African-Americans compared to whites. It's logically appealing, right? It really is, even though I sense that you're about to pull the rug out from under me here. But I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. If I remember correctly, it sounds like something I heard like on 60 Minutes back in the day or something. I wouldn't tick, be tick, surprised. Tick, 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 tick. The biggest problem with this was that there was no biological basis for it. Huh. But an almost as big problem was that it got completely misrepresented by the media. You don't say. Yeah. Huh. 
Hypertension is the journal for blood pressure. It's the number one journal in the world. A journal of the American Medical Association news item reported on the hypothesis under the headline, African Lineage Hypertension Linked. Uh, and the news that news item included the results of a study that fits with the grim hypothesis, concluding that salt may be handled differently by blacks and whites. The New York Times covered this in their medical science section under the headline, Black Hypertension May Reflect Other Ills. Outside Factors May Trigger Genetic Vulnerability. Wow. Oh, boy. Here comes there the genetics. All of, the, all of these popular articles and headlines, you know, selling this idea that there was something biologically different about African-Americans. This was clearly pointed out as an African gene in science news under the uh, title, literally, the African gene, question mark, searching wow. through history for the roots of black hypertension. And our good friend, UCLA physiologist Jared Diamond published a <laughs> highly laudatory statement about the slavery hypertension hypothesis in Natural History magazine, asking, what is it about American blacks that makes them disproportionately likely to develop hypertension and then to die of its consequences? Wow. So in other words, you're saying that these studies that weren't 100% supported get picked up by the news media and completely sensationalized, which misrepresents the, the science even worse than it would be otherwise. Yeah. Believe it or not, that's what happened. It's shocking, uh, isn't it? That never happens anymore. Shocking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and as soon as the word gene is in there, it gets picked up even more. It, it didn't just stick in the popular media. It also came out into the scientific literature, including medical textbooks that were very commonly used in medical school, like The Pathophysiology of Hypertension in Blacks, published in 1993, Textbook of Hypertension and Clinical Hypertension in 1994. Wow. And then there's the article on the Cambridge World History of Food, the huh. chapter on sodium was written in that by Wilson and Grimm. And that's just a, a, a few of, of the many places where this really popped out into uh, popular scientific circles. And it continues to be treated in the scientific literature. Earlier this year, I found an article where the slavery hypertension hypothesis was discussed in an article looking at possible gene mutations that might affect blood pressure. So the genomicists are on it too. These wow. authors offered the hypothesis as one possible avenue of genetic selection on the systems that control blood pressure without giving any kind of critical evaluation of the hypothesis, which is incredibly surprising since the only citation they offer about this hypothesis is a scathing critique of it by the anthropologist George Armelagus. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. It sounds like this is another one of those weird cyclical things where the news media picks up on something and then academics smelling a quick publication, potentially in a more popular media or something, they pile on top of it. But was there any evidence that it was actually incorrect? There was. And you'll love this, Eric. The most damning of the critical backlash that came against this article wasn't from a physician, not even from an anthropologist, but rather from a historian. Woohoo! That's like, uh, <laughs> wasn't a historian the one who caused this? In incorrect hypothesis to be picked up in the beginning anyway, though? Oh, yeah, there is that, isn't there? So mm -hmm. we're, the, uh, we're both the cause of and the solution to all academic misunderstandings. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <that> seems fair. <laughs> in, in this case, the historian was Philip Curtin, 
he had studied the slave trade and he was cited in the original Grimm and Wilson article. Huh. He pointed out just a year after the hypertension article was published that Grimm and Wilson had made some major mistakes in tracing slaves to salt poor origins in their African homelands, supposing that there was inadequate salt during the passage. And he also suggested that they had serious misunderstandings about mortality on the slave voyages. There was criticism from anthropology, too. Anthropologist Fatima Jackson argued that in spite of a possible genetic bottleneck that might have happened during the Middle Passage that actually might have increased the frequency of salt sensitivity initially, other parts of the passage and the slavery experience would have maybe worked against a simple genetic cause of increased hypertension among modern African-Americans. Okay. But but the problem is that the slavery hypertension hypothesis has served as one of the main bases for considering blacks and whites as significantly biologically different, especially among physicians. So this bolsters notions of racial essentialism in a very critical sector. Man, this seems just like a mirror of the sickle cell story. It, it really, really, it, you know, it is. And, and it doesn't go away. It just doesn't. Huh. Yeah. So the question I always get at this point when I'm teaching about this stuff is, okay, well, if it's not genes that are responsible for these big differences in blood pressure between black and white groups in the U.S., then what the heck is actually causing it? Mm-hmm. And and now this is where I get to steer our ship back toward the literature on stress and race and hypertension. Not that I'm biased. That's not that uh, I've done any work in this particular topic or anything. Yeah, exactly. You're totally biased. This is what you work on, isn't it? No, not really. Not as much as Jim has. Why don't you point the finger at him? Okay, I point my finger at you, Jim. All right, and I point my finger right back at you, perhaps my middle finger. (laughs) (laughs) Warm fuzzies on podcast time. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so there's been renewed interest in the study of blood pressure in anthropology, I would say, in the last 20 years or so especially since medical anthropologists have really started paying attention in mass to questions about how racial health disparities get perpetuated by discriminatory structures in government and everyday life. And that literature points to several pathways through which racial discrimination harms well-being. Some of our colleagues in the anthro department at Alabama break this up into five pathways in this great paper that I'll, I'll link um, in the show notes to the episode. But I kind of like to think about it as three pathways. I don't know that's That's just how my brain works. Okay. Well, what do you call those three pathways? So in my mind, the first is a direct pathway that involves basic access to resources that can support or harm health, like having access to healthy food and good medical care, right? This has to do with socioeconomic status, where you live. If you're part of a discriminated against racial group, you're less likely to have access to good medical care and healthy food and green space to exercise, money to pay for the gym and all that other stuff. Okay, so social and economic discrimination, that, that's pathway number one? Yeah. Okay, pretty that much, seems pretty yeah. straightforward. Yeah, so it's pretty straightforward. Like, There's tons and tons of data out there about how the neighborhood you live in shapes your life chances, including things that impact your health. There was this Harvard team of sociologists who published a study in 2015 that looked at more than like 5 million families who'd moved across wow. counties. I think we've even talked about that study on this podcast before, haven't we? I'll just say yes. It's only been two years. Um, (laughs) Well, it's worth revisiting even if we have. It's a great study. What it found was that children who'd moved from lower income areas did much better on life indicators like adult income, college attendance, teenage pregnancy, marriage. Um, They did much better than counterparts who hadn't moved Uh out of lower income areas. 
And that same year, in 2015, there was another really important study done by a group at Stanford that found that Black and Hispanic families needed to have higher incomes than white families in order to live in the same upper middle class neighborhoods. So in other words, there was a steeper barrier for racial minority families to get into the neighborhoods where they'd be most likely to have access to the resources that predict adult success and health. Things that I was just talking about, like fancy grocery stores and nice green space and all that stuff. So that's it's probably pretty easy to see there how those questions of access and race get translated into things like blood pressure problems, right? Yeah, I mean, everything that you said just makes a lot of sense. What's, but Thanks. you said there were three pathways. So what's what's pathway number two? So the second pathway has to do with internalized discrimination. And it involves the health-harming effects of self-stigmatization on life chances. I don't think... Can you unpack that? I don't think I know what that means. Yes. Okay. So what I mean is there's been a lot of work done in psychology and sociology showing that people who are discriminated against tend to internalize that discrimination. And okay. Maybe even to some extent believe these terrible things that other people say or imply about their inferiority. Okay? So... Yeah. When I teach about this, students are always struck by the results of the so-called doll test, which was an experiment that was first conducted by African-American psychologists Kenneth and Mamie Clark in the 1940s. Yeah, we talk about this in my class. This is the study that they um, presented children with dolls that were black skin color, dolls that were white skin color. And then they asked the children questions like, which doll is the good doll? Which doll is the nice doll? Which doll is the ugly doll? Et cetera, et cetera. This is the study that shows up in the notorious footnote 11 of Brown v. Board of Education that we talked about in episode three of Race and IQ. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yes, that's right. So kids across the board in these studies, black or white or otherwise, really consistently responded that the white doll was the nice one and the good one and the pretty one. And this experiment's been repeated over and over, and it very poignantly demonstrates how children, even at a young age, learn and internalize really negative ideas about darker skinned people even when they themselves are darker skin. And that's why it was used in Brown versus Board to demonstrate that racial segregation leaves psychological damage that hurts young minds. Yeah. Oh, and I, that is really depressing. Yeah. So since then, we've developed ways of measuring how much a person has internalized racist ideas. And we've learned that, not surprising here, right, the more a racial minority person believes in racist ideas, the worse off they do on a range of both physical and mental health outcomes, right? Yeah. Okay. So the first one is the social and economic discrimination that we kind of see just out there in the world. The second pathway is self-stigmatization, which seems even more pernicious. What's the third one? So the third one is a pathway involving chronic activation of stress responses as a result of being discriminated against. And those chronic stress responses erode health over time. Okay, so there's been a lot of work looking at how humans respond to stress. You've probably heard of fight or flight mechanisms, right? Yeah, of course. So so that fight or flight response is an adrenaline-mediated stress response. And it's supposed to produce a short-term burst of energy in us so that we can escape from a predator or some other imminent danger. Or like run away from a student. (laughs) Yes, a rabid, angry student who wants their A-minus changed to an A. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that response is supposed to, it's supposed to be a big, quick burst, then it's supposed to go away. It's not okay. supposed to be active all the time. And that's because it taxes our bodies a lot. It costs our bodies a lot to mount that response. It slows down our digestion. It puts a surge of blood sugar into our bloodstream in case we need quick energy to get away from danger. Uh, it basically puts most of our, our major systems on hold so we can focus on escaping whatever it is, the rabid student, for instance. So, yep. so it's supposed to be temporary. 
And this is why I should give up teaching. Yes, exactly. Because it's supposed to only be temporary. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in our busy, stressed out modern lives, those responses are often activated way too often and for way too long. Amen. And the activation of those hormones, especially if it's frequent or continuous, as it often is for people who are dealing with discrimination on a daily basis, yeah. that contributes directly to things like increased fat storage, which can lead to obesity, to deposits of plaque in the arteries that can lead to heart failure, higher blood sugar that can lead to diabetes, shortened telomeres that can speed up aging. And guess what? Uh, let me guess, because we're talking about it in this episode. Could it be hypertension? Yes, that's right. Higher blood pressure. Um, in the literature, this process is called weathering. So oh, the yeah. body actually gets weathered or wears out more quickly when it's stressed like this all the time. And that's at least part of the mechanism that's underlying higher blood pressure among African-Americans as opposed to whites in the United uh, States. There's been work in the last two or three decades, mostly done in anthropology, although I'm not biased at all, <laughs> has been using a mix of research approaches to try to trace exactly how experiences of discrimination lead to this type of weathering. Huh. Lance Gravely, a, a friend and an anthropologist at the University of Florida, found that down in Puerto Rico, it's not your actual skin color, the amount of melanin in your skin that darkens it, which we can measure directly. And it's not your genetic ancestry markers, like the ancestry markers used by a, an outfit like 23andMe that predict whether or not you're likely to have high blood pressure. Instead, more importantly, it's your socially assigned race that shapes how likely you are to have higher blood pressure. That might not sound particularly earth shattering, but let me kind of take that apart or unpack it for you. Yeah, do that, please. We usually think of this thing called race as being mostly about skin color and genetics, right? Well, not not we on this podcast, <laughs> but yes, in general, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean, the lay understanding yeah. of the term. Gravely's research is telling us it's not physical appearance or their genetics that determines blood pressure. Instead, it's how other people treat you, how other people see your race. Huh. So if people look at you and think that you're a member of a low-status race group, they'll treat you differently than they huh. would if you were a higher-status race group. Yeah. They might act mistrustful of you. They might make it hard for you to get a bank loan. They might follow you around in a store to make sure you won't shoplift or any number huh. of things. Yeah, and in fact, Bill Dressler at University of Alabama has spent his career studying how structural barriers that make it hard for people to attain cultural standards of success, which like in the U.S. might be, you know, the house with the white picket fence ideal, how those are related to blood pressure and depression and other health problems, even after you control for a person's actual socioeconomic status. Huh. His work is mostly in Brazil, but others have replicated those findings all over the world. Including in Tuscaloosa and American Samoa, where we collaborated on this. Yeah. So in other words, plain old discrimination all by itself has really important effects on blood pressure. So the, the review, I guess, the three things would be this, this most recent one that you just presented, stress. But then there's the social and economic discrimination. And then there's the internalizing of the, the racial discrimination. So we have these three different ways that discrimination can have a really strong effect on individual health. Yes. Yeah. To me, this work tells us something important that relates all the way back to the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning of today's episode. The first thing is it's not a person's race that shapes their blood pressure, but instead how other people treat them based on what they perceive about their race. 
and those negative ideas come back and permeate into the consciousness of discriminated against individuals in damaging ways, in physiologically damaging ways. Mm -hmm. And second, the experiences of discrimination raise blood pressure because they're really stressful every single day. They don't ever go away. Together, these studies are telling us that it's the discrimination of other people and the resulting limitations on life chances that are related to the blood pressure. And just as a side note, this work is going even a step farther. So Gravely and his colleagues have done more recent work that looks at what he refers to as vicarious racism or the experience of somebody that you know and that you're close to being discriminated against. And his work is suggesting that even hearing about someone else you care about being discriminated against can be enough to affect both your physical and mental health in some of the ways that we've talked about just now, even if it's not happening directly to you. Wow. So vicarious racism is yet another way of of this entrenching itself even more deeply in society. And it just appears biologically, though it is not itself derived from the biology. Yeah. So our non-biological race has biological impact. In other words... Race doesn't exist, but it does kill people. Exactly. I think that's a perfect place to end. I think you guys nailed it. Good job. All right. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter, and Instagram at Speaking of Race. And apparently Jim is now making cool playlists on SoundCloud. SoundCloud playlist. Check us out. Speaking of race on SoundCloud. Oh, uh, well, I'm going to just say the whole damn thing over again because I like to punish myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there's the outtake. (laughs) (laughs) I love it.